Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. My phone rang around 11 p.m. on a Friday night. I was on call covering our clinic, so the late night call wasn't at all surprising. Hello, I said, in as kindly a voice as I could muster, at Friday, on a late night, rolling out of bed. I'd been trying to catch a little sleep in case I had to admit a patient to the hospital overnight. But I anticipated it might be a worried patient on the other end of the line, and a kind voice can go a long way toward reassurance. Sure enough, an anxious mom responded, Hello, Dr. Rom. I could hear a toddler's slight coughing in the background. Dr. Rom, I'm so sorry to bother you at night. My daughter Janie's almost two. She's had a temperature of about 100.2 since this afternoon, and she's been fussy and pulling on her right ear since just after dinner. Before that, she was playing with her older brother, but by dinner, she was cranky and didn't eat much. She's also really clingy. She's taking juice and water, which I've been giving her to keep her hydrated, and I gave her Tylenol about an hour ago just to see if it would help her sleep. Her fever's been down to 99.6 since then, and she's settled down some. My son's had ear infections before, and both kids have had a cold for a few days. I'm a bit worried, and I don't know if I should bring her to the emergency department or whether she needs an antibiotic right away. My son has always gotten antibiotics from our pediatrician every time he's had an ear infection, so I just don't know what to do. Hi, this is Dr. Aviva, and welcome to Natural Remedies for Kids' Ear Infections. With the fall weather creeping in, at least here in New England where I live, it seems like a really good time to dive deep into some kids' fall health issues. And even though kids can get ear infections and do get ear infections any time of the year, I definitely start to get more calls and see more infections this time of year. So I thought we'd roll out the autumn with a talk on kids' ear infections. So today we're going to talk about how to prevent them and what to do if your child does get one. I know it's super confusing to figure out when your child does or doesn't need an antibiotic for an ear infection. So today I'm here to help you sort this out. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about what ear infections are, what the issues are with antibiotics and the problem of antibiotic overuse. And we're going to talk about how to both prevent and treat infections, ear infections naturally, and when to go to the doctor and how to know when you need to. Now, about 90% of all kids will have a middle ear infection or otitis media, which is the kind we're talking about today at some time before school age, and about 60% of all kids will have had one by the time they're two years old. 30 to 40% of kids have recurrent ear infections lasting for three months, with 10% lasting as long as a year. Kids' ear infections are the most important common reason that land kids in the doctor's office. So chances are, if you have kids and you're listening to this, your kiddos had at least one ear infection, likely more, and you've probably been told that he or she needs an antibiotic at least once. I know many of you want to do things as naturally as possible and struggle with whether to give your kids 
antibiotics. So I hope today's episode doesn't disappoint in getting all of this really, really clear for you, helping dispel some of your concerns and worries about ear infections and help give you some basic guidance on what to do if your child does have one. And I do want to say that in spite of the statistics, ear infections do not have to be an inevitable fact of childhood. And when they do occur, here's kind of a spoiler alert, antibiotics are almost always unnecessary. So the bottom line is that rates of ear infections, this otitis media, the middle ear infection, the kind that antibiotics are really commonly used for, have been on the rise in the past decade, concurrent with increases in childhood allergies and asthma. And this is thought to be due to a combination of factors, including environmental exposures, which interestingly, even exposures to common herbicides and pesticides, plastics, and other environmental chemicals that our kids are getting exposed to from before they're even born, actually alter the functioning of immune cells. So we definitely want to think about reducing kids' environmental exposures as much as possible, which I talk about in articles over on my website, and I'll talk about in upcoming podcast episodes. Other factors are lower than optimal nutrition, which you might be thinking, well, I mean, we live in the United States, or maybe you're listening from another country like Canada or the UK, where we think kids don't have malnutrition. And it's true, our kids are not experiencing malnutrition at the rates of children living in developing countries or countries with really poor resources. But the fact is, most kids at least in the U.S. and most developing countries, are nutritionally insufficient. It doesn't mean they have necessarily frank nutritional deficiencies like beriberi from vitamin B deficiencies or scurvy from vitamin C deficiency. But a lot of our kids are getting suboptimal dietary intake of many of the nutrients that we do need. And I'll talk more about these to keep the immune system optimally resilient and optimally preventing infection. And this is due to a number of factors ranging from toddlers being picky and getting more juice and sugar than they used to and having their appetites kind of nipped in the bud because of that to not having the kind of sit down meals that we have historically and traditionally had and everybody eating on the run and eating faster foods to our diets actually not being filled with the optimal nutrition we need because our foods actually are more nutritionally depleted and our soil more nutritionally depleted than historically has been the case. Additionally, a lot of our kids are getting what I call anti-foods or anti-nutrients in that when you're getting things like fruit juice, even if it's organic fruit juice, the exception might be homemade, fresh pressed, like carrot, apple kind of juices. But when you're getting any bottled juices or even some of the fresh pressed organic juices that come in, in packages that we can so readily buy now, those tend to fill up our kids and they may give our kids a little bit of vitamin C, some antioxidant benefit, but they're filling our kids up from getting other foods. So they drink a juice, they're not as hungry, and then they're getting a limited number of nutrients. And also sugar, even in fresh juice, acts as an anti-nutrient to the immune system. So sugar suppresses the immune system. 
If your kids are getting sugar, you know, added sugar in their diet, that's a major immune system suppressant. And not only do artificial ingredients in our foods and processed foods impede nutrition, but they don't give nutrition, but they also cause inflammation that causes the body to burn up nutrients faster. So our kind of standard American processed diet really not only doesn't give kids the nutrition they need, but it takes away from their optimal nutrition by depleting their bodies even further. Additionally, environmental pollution, whether it be from air pollution outside due to car exhaust and other toxins, but even in-home air pollution, which is, believe it or not, higher than external pollution in most homes because now homes are built so airtight for heat efficiency, but they're off-gassing all kinds of things like off-gassing from paints and finishings and chemicals in our cleaning products can also affect our kids' immunity. And then any kids who are exposed to secondhand smoke or in-home heating from wood sources like a wood stove or fireplace, that can also increase kids' risks of ear infections. So not to be too scary, but we've got this escalating rate of ear infections in kids. We've got this escalating rate of antibiotic use. There's been an estimated 45% rise in antibiotic prescribing for ear infections in the past couple of decades. So we've almost doubled our our prescriptions for antibiotics for ear infections. It's really important for us to take an honest look at the causative factors and reduce those in every, you know, kind of lurking corner that we possibly can. Obviously, we can't necessarily change external air pollution, but we can do things like using cleaner, greener house cleaning products at home. And you'd be amazed at how far a little bit of white vinegar and lemon juice and baking soda can go to really get your house clean. And there are so many great non-toxic, non-perfumed, gentler cleaning products out there on the market. And you know, as you're listening, you might be thinking, well, yeah, I mean, that's fine for Dr. Aviva to say, but these things are really expensive. I want to say a few things about that. One, I raised four kids on a school teacher, home birth midwife budget. And this was before home birth midwife was popular and bringing in the big bucks, I promise you. And we really were able to do it. I mean, this can be done on a very modest budget. And the other thing is that when you really look at the mathematics of this and these kind of mathematics, these kind of economics are done, the, this data can be found or, or figured out. When you look at the cost of kids getting sick, it really is a pay now or pay later situation. Again, it doesn't have to be more expensive, but when you start thinking about things like organics versus non-organics and the slight few dollar differences here or there, compared to lost work days for you if you have to stay home because your child has an ear infection or the long-term costs of what happens on a person's health cumulatively when they are exposed to excessive use of antibiotics in childhood. It may seem sort of abstract now, but I work with women you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s who had had strong histories of antibiotics, particularly for ear infections or strep or other infections when they were kids, who are now struggling with things like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, or other autoimmune disease, which we do know can be tracked back to early excessive exposures, you really can't put a price on that. So as you're listening, 
I really do encourage you to take to heart making some of these changes that can make not just a short-term difference, but also a long-term difference. So back to this issue of a 45% rise in antibiotic prescribing for ear infections alone, we're not even talking about strep or sinus infections or anything else, just ear infections, at least half, if not more of those prescriptions are statistically known to be unnecessary. And this is according to authoritative medical reviewers that are very conservative, like the Centers for Disease Control. When you know the Centers for Disease Control is saying an antibiotic is being used too often, antibiotics are being used too often. So at this point, you might be thinking, well, really, what's the big deal if my kid gets a lot of ear infections and what's the problem with antibiotics anyway? Well, the problems are several fold. One, recurrent ear infections are a symptom. They're a condition, but they're a symptom that your child's immune system is not adequately ramping up to fight infection. So it's telling you that your child needs more nutritional support for optimal immunity or needs obstacles removed that might be causing ear infections. So we're going to talk about some of the dietary triggers, for example, and some of the environmental triggers that I alluded to, like wood smoke, for example. Additionally, ear infections are painful. They can lead to scarring of the eardrum, and they can lead to problems for your kids in school. So for example, I have had parents who have come to me for children who were diagnosed with attention problems in their classroom. But what it really was is not the kids weren't paying attention. They couldn't actually hear because they had such chronic ear congestion. Remember, I said earlier, ear infections can be recurrent for up to a year. So you're thinking about a kid who's in second grade, who's going through an entire year with muffled hearing and chronic infections. This can really lead to significant uh, learning kind of issues for your child in that they can have some learning that they need to catch up on because they essentially missed that entire year of school. Their body was there, but their hearing wasn't. They just weren't getting what was being said to them. But they can also end up with an erroneous diagnosis of ADHD or ADD because the entire ear infection picture was overlooked. And as I mentioned, it's not only missed days of school for your your child, but it can be missed days of work. And when I said that some of this data is kind of figure outable, ear infections have been found to come at a national annual price tag of about $4 billion. So kids' ear infections are costing parents, kids, the medical system, et cetera, $4 billion a year. Okay. Another problem with ear infections is that even a single course of antibiotics for ear infections in young children increases the immediate risk of side effects. And side effects of antibiotics are one of the leading causes that lead to emergency emergency department visits. So it can be everything from respiratory distress to allergic reactions. There are also well-defined long-term risks of developing inflammatory bowel disease that includes Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, as well as asthma. And it has been shown that due to some influences of the antibiotics on the gut flora, as well as on something called the mitochondria, antibiotic exposure 
can lead to obesity later in life. Furthermore, and maybe even more significantly than the individual price that we pay for antibiotics, is that antibiotic resistance is now considered the leading global health crisis we're facing. So you couldn't even add what's going on in Houston to Ebola to tuberculosis and come up with what the real risks are of antibiotic resistance globally. What's starting to happen is that there are infections that are common that antibiotics can no longer kill. And new antibiotics are not discovered very often. So we're actually running out of antibiotics to treat the more serious infections that can happen while we're treating things like ear infections that don't usually need an antibiotic completely unnecessarily. This is really, really serious. But when it's your kid that's sick, all you want to do is the right thing to keep him or her healthy and safe. So what do you do to sort through this whole conundrum? Well, here are six of the surefire tips that I use in my medical practice for preventing ear infections. And in full disclosure, I can say I have raised four kids. My youngest is 23 and my oldest is 32 at the time of this podcast. And I never once used an antibiotic for ear infections in my kids or for anything actually when they were kids. My first kid to ever have an antibiotic was a topical one. And that was when he was 18. And in college, he got injured in a, in a dissection lab in a science class in, in um, his first year of college or second year of college. I'm not antibiotic opposed. There are times when I do recommend antibiotics in my medical practice, but we have to really, really pay attention to when we're prescribing. And the reality is, is that 70% of antibiotics for ear infections in kids are probably unnecessary. The CDC suggest that at least 45% are unnecessary, but up to 70% are unnecessary. And despite efforts over 20 years to get physicians to reduce their antibiotic prescribing practices for kids with ear infections, it's only budged a small amount. And so before I get into the surefire reasons, you know, kind of share with you some of what the reasons are that antibiotics get overprescribed and what we can do about that. One is that there's a huge expectation on the part of pediatricians and family doctors and other physicians who treat kids that parents want the antibiotic. And in fact, a lot of parents will come in and ask for an antibiotic or call me for a prescription for an antibiotic. And I, it takes a lot of work to educate parents that you don't need to give an antibiotic for an ear infection. And that begets another problem is that most physicians don't have the time to give the explanation. So my daughter-in-law, for example, she's a practicing pediatrician, but when she was in her pediatric residency at Harvard, and she has a master's in public health, so she should have been educated on antibiotic overprescribing. She shared with me, one, that she was barely educated on it, and two, when she was in a busy emergency room or in her clinic seeing you know, 35 kids a day, she had 15 minutes to evaluate what was going on, reassure the parents, and make a recommendation. And she didn't have time to sit down with most parents and explain that they didn't need an antibiotic. She said it was really a lot quicker just to write the prescription. But that also brings us to the next reason that antibiotics are overprescribed. So, so far we've got parents wanting them. 
two, doctors not having time to give alternative explanations. Three is that most doctors are not trained in what those alternative explanations are. I happen to be the author of the the only, to my knowledge, integrative curriculum that's used widely in pediatric and family medicine residencies in the United States. It's the Yale Pediatric Residency Curriculum, and it's in something like 75 different medical residencies. And there's a uh, University of Arizona has a small program that's in a few residency programs. But short of that page and a half that I contribute and the few doctors that are going through the University of Arizona Pediatric Residency Program, there's scant to little pediatric integrative medicine training. And interestingly, studies have been done looking at pediatricians, and they're very, very interested in alternatives, and particularly herbal and nutritional supplements, but they're really scared to use them because they're afraid that they don't work, or they're afraid that if they recommend them, and the child still has some kind of a bad outcome, they're going to get sued, which brings us to the fourth big reason that antibiotics get overprescribed is that doctors are afraid to get sued. So you've got parents asking for them, doctors who are afraid not to give them because if the alternatives don't work, they're going to be responsible. And it's not just getting sued, but it's, you know, having something happening to a child on your conscience that really is upsetting too. Lack of time for explaining alternatives and lack of knowledge of what those alternatives are. And those four things are the biggest recipes for why pediatricians and family doctors and others are overprescribing antibiotics. So where you can come into this is one, let your physician know that you'd really rather not do the antibiotic unless it's necessary. Two, you know about this site called CDC Get Smart, which I'm going to tell you about, that you can actually sit there and in five minutes or less open up with the pediatrician or the family doctor and go right to the section for physicians that's recommended, and they can walk through that with you and say, like, based on these really firm criteria, your child does or doesn't need an antibiotic right now, or we can watch and wait, and we'll talk more about that. But CDC, get smart. That's all you have to do. Look it up. CDC, get smart. It'll take you and your family doctor or pediatrician or naturopath, whoever it is, right over to the physician section, or you can look it up for yourself. Then you can be knowledgeable about the alternatives yourself, which I'm going to talk with you about today. And you can even print out the articles. There's some links to the articles that accompany this podcast below. Print them out and bring them to your pediatrician or family doctor because your child's doctor can actually look up the evidence for these. And there are lots of references at the end. So that can be reassuring to your family doc or pediatrician. And, you know, I've brought over a hundred pediatrician and other pediatric practitioners through a professional training program. And they're thrilled when they have the information that they can use that they can rely on. You know, you can tell your family doc or pediatrician that's treating your child, look, I'll put it in writing that I'd rather take a wait and see approach so that they feel a little bit less fearful of the responsibility and, you know, let them know that you've done your homework. So they, if they know they only have 15 minutes to sit with you, you can say, look, I've got the resources. I'd like to try this. Can we check in in 24 hours? If anything gets worse, I'll go ahead and do the antibiotic or, you know, bring little Sarah or little Noah back in to see you. 
And if it's getting better, I'll let you know so that you have a reasonable plan that they can feel comfortable with. Okay, so jumping back to the six surefire tips for prevention, one of these, number one, is just nipping colds in the bud. Ear infections are generally preceded by cold symptoms, usually runny noses. So congestion in the nose finds its way back into the eustachian canals, and that's the tube that connects the sinus passages with the inner and middle ear. And that fluid, that sort of congested fluid, um, which is already filled with a virus, usually becomes an, an infection breeding ground. Now, most most ear infections, in fact, at least 70 or up to 90% of kids' ear infections are actually viral ear infections. Antibiotics do not treat viruses. Some doctors will say, well, I'm giving it to prevent a secondary bacterial infection. It's true. Bacterial infections can happen when you have a viral ear infection or sinus infections, infection up in that upper respiratory area that sits and sits and sits and doesn't get treated. But we don't give antibiotics to prevent a potential secondary bacterial infection. That's the wrong use of an antibiotic. So that should prick your ears up if you hear a doctor saying that, that that doctor is not on the right track with their or up to date on their antibiotic prescribing knowledge, not when it comes to kids' ear infections and viral ear infections. So cold viruses, and then also if there are bacteria, they just kind of migrate there um, because those eustachian tubes connect the throat and the sinuses and, and, the, and the ear. So if your child starts to develop a cold, and especially if he or she is prone to ear infections, you want to just not let that cold progress. You want to try to head it off at the pass with good nutrition, herbs, and supplements for colds. And everything I'm talking about in the podcast today for ear infections can also help with with colds. The first thing I always do is take out all juice, wheat and dairy and sugar completely, 100% at the first sign of a cold. Juice, wheat, dairy, sugar out of the diet. And I keep it out of the diet for at least a few days and and usually till the end of the cold symptoms. And that's when I start using herbs to bolster immunity and fight infection. And my favorite natural remedies for kids are garlic lemon honey tea, which I'm going to teach you how to make in just a little bit. Or for kids under one year old, you can still use this remedy, but you use maple syrup instead of honey. Elderberry syrup and echinacea blend, especially during flu season. And then age-appropriate doses of zinc and vitamin D. And you're going to see a link below this podcast, uh, one for zinc and one for vitamin D for the Office of Dietary Supplements. And you'll just go to those pages and they'll give you the age-appropriate doses for zinc. For vitamin D, for kids under eight, it's usually 400 units a day. And then for kids eight and over, it's usually about 800 units a day. And then for teenagers, more like 2,000 units a day. Now, for the second thing you can do to prevent ear infections is if you're baby is still young and you're breastfeeding, or if you're pregnant, I really should say, and you're, and you're having a baby, you know, kind of be prepared ahead of time that breastfed babies are at least half as likely as formula-fed babies to get ear infections. So optimally, if you can breastfeed through age one, 
that is really, really helpful for supporting optimal immunity. It doesn't mean you have to exclusively breastfeed to age one. If you can optimally exclusively breastfeed for about the first six months, and then you can start letting healthy foods creep into the diet if your baby's interested and wants to, or you can exclusively breastfeed for longer. But breastfeeding is a great preventative for children so they don't develop ear infections. And one tip with breastfeeding is that when you do nurse your baby, or if you're using a bottle and giving formula or breast milk in a bottle, keep your baby at a 45 degree upright angle while feeding rather than nursing or feeding the baby on her side. Back to those eustachian tubes, when the baby is drinking or suckling, if the baby's laying on her side, that milk gets in the back of the throat, but it also can dribble back into that eustachian tube and become a site for infection. So definitely, you know, kind of think about positioning and particularly if you have a breastfed baby who is getting infections, change positioning and that can help. There's also more of a risk of cow milk and formula feeding. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. I'm not a huge fan of soy, but if you are going to formula feed your baby using an organic milk source, consider goat milk if your baby does get ear infections and you're doing formula. Or if you need to do formula, consider a non-allergenic formula that can be helpful. The third tip is to avoid juice and dairy. So well, whether your child is still in that breastfeeding age or beyond, kids who drink a lot of juice and dairy products get more ear infections. First of all, they encourage the production of a lot of mucus in the upper respiratory system. And as I mentioned earlier, sugar, which you have sugar in both milk, which is lactose, and in juice, does depress the immune function. And that can further exacerbate the problem. So in my opinion, frankly, Juice is never a healthy part of children's diets, with the exception of maybe seasonally. And for a treat, you're adding in some carrot apple juice in the fall, or maybe you make some juice ice pops, you know, in the summer, but it's not a regular part of the diet. It's not a beverage. So, and the same with milk. In in my opinion, once kids are beyond breastfeeding, milk is not an optimal part of the diet. 50% of kids who have constipation, when you take dairy out of their diet, the constipation goes away. In my opinion, water, gentle herbal teas, those are the best beverages for kids and no soda either, ever. Soda is never a part of, a, of, of anybody's healthy diet. The fourth tip for prevention is to use nutrition to bolster immunity. So not just you're not just avoiding things, but you want to think about what fosters and nourishes a healthy, optimal immune system function. The immune system requires very specific nutritional building blocks, and those include protein, good quality fats, and plenty of foods that are rich in vitamins and minerals. Now, I know, I'm a mom too, feeding kids well and getting them to eat well are two totally different things. You know, it's like the leading the horse to water and getting them to drink phenomenon. Kids can be picky and kids also get more than just we give them, whether it's school or friends' houses or birthday parties and so on. So we've just got to do our best to provide them with healthy options. And kind of the way I always looked at it was home was where the health was. 
And, you know, we know that restriction, whether it's for adults or kids, tends to make people get, first of all, secretive about foods and also binge. So rather than making things forbidden fruits, kind of setting some boundaries and say, you know, these are the kinds of foods we eat at home and 90% of the food would be food you would then be preparing and providing with greater flexibility for when kids eat out. Obviously, if your child is gluten intolerant or has celiac or other food allergies or intolerances, then you do need to be restrictive about that. But in general, as a rule, not making sugar the enemy, you know, not saying you can never have a treat or never have dairy, but just being mindful of healthy being 95% of the time. And then that rest being kind of like the, the, the icing on the cake, if you will, and the cake too. You want to make sure that you're providing good quality protein sources at each meal, whether meat-based or vegetarian, and good quality fats like olive oil, walnut oil, coconut oil, and avocado at least twice a day. Nuts and seeds are great protein-rich sources and also contain high-quality fats. And then you want to just keep giving kids vegetables, ideally giving them two servings of a vegetable choice at each meal. And you know you just have to kind of play with it. The sort of the average is that you have to give a kid a food 10 times before they decide they really don't like it. And that means getting really creative, giving kids veggies in lots of different ways, raw, cooked, you know, hidden in smoothies, buried into, you know, all kinds of different choices that you can bury, greens blended up and other vegetables blended up. And then fruits are really healthy. I mean, fruit has been kind of vilified in um, sort of the modern fad way of eating, but even paleo diet tends to be really restrictive about fruit. But fruits can be really, really helpful for kids and can provide a lot of different nutrients that they might not be getting from their vegetables. So with kids, I'm fairly liberal with fruit as long as they're not only eating fruit and not getting their other nutrients that they need. And then just, you know, completely avoiding processed and junk foods and heavily processed natural foods too. Like you might've heard the term Franken foods. So things like soy bacon or, you know, fake chicken nuggets made of soy, things that imitate real foods and then keep sweets, even natural sweets to a minimum. There are some supplements that I do find and studies have shown can benefit kids on a daily basis and can prevent ear infections. And these include a multivitamin with zinc, making sure that your child is getting 400 to 800 units of vitamin D3 every day. And I mentioned the age range earlier, and then a probiotic daily. Those have been shown to prevent ear infections and help kind of fill in the gaps that a lot of kids aren't getting in their diet. Interestingly, giving echinacea daily during the season that your child is most likely to get ear infections can actually prevent ear infections. And a typical dose of echinacea for prevention is one drop of echinacea per pound of your child's body weight. So if your child weighs 30 pounds, 30 drops once or twice a day, depending on how high risk your kid is for getting recurrent ear infections. And then for babies and children under two, and I would even extend this to kids under five, xylitol, which is a naturally occurring sugar, has been found to prevent ear infections. You can give it as a syrup 
or you can give it as a lozenge or chewing gum. The problem is that you have to give it like five times a day in the chewing gum or lozenge form. So most kids are not going to take it that way. And you can give the drops, but you know, a lot of parents think of, oh, well, it's a natural sugar. I don't want to give it. Or if your child's in daycare, they won't give it at the daycare. So it's something to think about giving, but it's, it really is more effective when it's given several times a day. So that becomes kind of an obstacle to using it. But it has been shown in studies to be effective. And then the last two of the six quick tips for prevention are avoiding environmental exposure to smoke. So tobacco smoke and wood smoke. And interestingly, even third-hand smoke, so tobacco residue on a caregiver's clothing, can dramatically increase your risk of getting ear infections. You'd be amazed at how many in-home daycare providers and even in daycare centers, the providers are going out and having a cigarette or several cigarettes over the course of a day. So you might be doing everything right quote unquote, right at home and your child is getting ear infections and you have no idea why, it could actually be that your child is getting third hand smoke exposure through residues off of someone's clothing. So don't, don't diminish that as a possibility. And then the last thing for prevention is actually stress. Even little kids can experience stress and school age kids are experiencing all kinds of social pressures, bullying, work pressures, and home life stressors. So, you know, addressing whether there's some stress going on in your child's environment at school is really important. And then also making sure that they're getting enough sleep because sleep is such a critical aspect of of a healthy immune system. You can teach children meditation, yoga, and stress reduction practices at a really young age. Sometimes I feel like we're so busy teaching kids about, you know, Christopher Columbus sailing the ocean blue, which is really not helpful information and not even socially really um, acceptable information, in my opinion, uh, given the history of our country. That's an aside, but it's not changing their life. We're teaching meditation and stress management can hugely change a child's life. So keep that in mind. All right. So let's switch gears now to not just prevention of ear infection, but treatment of ear infection. And if you're finding yourself to be a little overwhelmed by the information, have no fear. I always do these podcasts that are information-based or have nutritional or supplement recommendations in a written form also. So you can find two separate articles over on my website, which I've posted the links below the podcast, one on ear infection prevention and one on ear infection treatment. So you've got both of those that you can look at separately. It breaks the information out really nicely for you. The other thing is if you feel like you want more one-on-one guidance and you're interested in a course I actually have a program called Healthy All Year, which is just this amazing kind of library of information, videos, and something like 10 hours of conversation and video with me, essentially. It's not really conversation, but it's me sharing with you in a conversational tone, everything from how to get kids to eat healthy, to how to build stress resilience, to how to build immune resilience, and then very specific lessons on ear infections, sore throat, strep, and all kinds of common kids' health issues ranging from the ones I mentioned to belly aches, to skin infections, lice, all kinds of things, and how to treat those naturally at home. 
And all of the relevant topics are broken down into what symptoms to look for, when to see a doctor, when you need medical help like antibiotics, and all the things that you can do naturally. It's super guided and really wonderful. To find out about that, just go over to healthiestkids.com. That's all you have to Google, healthiestkids.com, and you'll find the course over there with also a robust forum of moms talking. It's like 99.9% moms in that course, talking with each other and asking questions. And there's a large library of questions that I answered over the first 18 months of that course after it was born. All right. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what an acute ear infection is. Acute otitis media refers to those typical painful ear infections kids get with fevers and upper respiratory infections. And that's what I'm going to focus on the treatment for in the rest of this article. I have a separate blog over on my website on what to do for kids who just have fluid in their ears, but when the fluid is not infected. So we're talking about actual infection today. Acute otitis media can range from very mild to severely painful. And in even in the least case scenario, it usually makes babies and kids fussy and irritable, but it can cause them to have just like outrageous screaming pain too. I've gotten calls from moms at, you know, two in the morning with a a toddler just wailing in the background. Typically, as I mentioned earlier, it starts out with a cold, especially a runny nose, but sometimes it can just seem to come out of absolutely nowhere. There's often a fever and younger children will generally pull on their ears or scream or cry suddenly and unexpectedly. Older children will generally tell you that they have ear pain. Ear infections are super common in kids under 12, and especially before grade school. And as I mentioned earlier, viruses are almost always the cause. I'm not going to get into the nuances of Tylenol and ibuprofen use. I do have other articles on those topics, which I would encourage you to read They are not as benign medications as we might be led to think that they are. They can have some serious long-term consequences. That said, one or two doses of either ibuprofen or Tylenol or alternating or even a couple of days, I've never seen adverse consequences with that short a use. It's usually starting when you're getting into three to five days or longer of, of use of those medications that it becomes a problem. I can also say, though, these other therapies will usually prevent the need for any medications, whether it's antibiotics, Tylenol, or ibuprofen. So just in a nutshell, here's when I absolutely ask my patients to bring their little one in to see me for an evaluation if there's the likelihood that they have an ear infection. If the baby is under six months old, if there's pain that won't resolve, either with the natural therapies or if we do end up resorting to Tylenol or ibuprofen for one or two doses to see what happens, if there is a fever of over 102.2 or over 39 degrees Celsius and persistent ear pain, if there's drainage from the ear, or if there's neck pain or stiffness. So those are the five key symptoms that will get me to have a patient bring their little one in. It doesn't mean we're going to use antibiotics. It just means I want to get a, 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 you know, a personal assessment. So when are antibiotics needed? The latest guidelines from the Academy of Medicine 
and followed by the Centers or recommended by the Centers for Disease Control have come around to recommending what natural practitioners have known for a long time, that prevention and a wait and watch attitude are the best approaches for most kids with ear infections most of the time. Here's when antibiotics are recommended for babies under six months old or babies who are six to 23 months old with an infection in both ears, so not just one ear. And in any child who has severe infection defined as very rapid onset of the symptoms, moderate or severe ear pain, ear pain lasting longer than 48 hours, and actual signs of an ear infection on exam and temperature of over 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 39 degrees Celsius. Both the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC agree that there should be a wait and watch period of 48 to 72 hours for all mild ear infections in babies over six months old before using an antibiotic. When there is ear pain, it really should be using alternative remedies or if you need to, ibuprofen or Tylenol to reduce the pain, not antibiotics. The good news is that most ear infections are self-limiting. That means they go away on their own with time, patience, and supportive therapies. Amazingly, about 80% of kids with acute otitis media get better without antibiotics in two to seven days. Not only that, they have no increased risk of hearing problems, other infections, even in the other ear, or need for more invasive medical interventions. Also, they don't have any of the adverse outcomes of kids who received antibiotics, including the development of antibiotic-resistant pneumonia, which is an adverse effect of getting antibiotics for ear infections. Those who did go on to get antibiotics did just as well as kids who did get them at the beginning of the infection. So again, a watch and wait attitude with some comfort measures is almost always all that's needed. If your child doesn't recover in 48 hours or so or worsens, an antibiotic can still be prescribed with no worse outcome than if your child had gotten it in the beginning. So I will just have my patients call me in and give me periodic updates. I usually say, give me a call in 24 hours, let me know how things are going, and then give me a call in another 24 hours and let me know how things are going. And certainly if anything gets worse in the meanwhile, absolutely let me know. And so what can you expect? Well, with a combination of the following approaches that I'm gonna share with you, ear pain and associated ear infection symptoms usually start to improve actually within a few hours. And almost all of them are usually completely resolved by about 48 hours. And here's the other thing. Most kids do not get recurrent ear infections. So they're not getting the three months of ear infections, the six months or 12 months that so often happens. And I have kids who have come to me from other doctors who have been getting antibiotics consecutively or off and on for as long as 18 months in a row. What's happening is that one, they're getting 
antibiotics for what are probably started out as viral ear infections, then they're getting antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections, or they're just getting the wrong treatment all along and just never getting rid of the problem. Also, nobody's ever getting to the root causes, which are the things that we talked about earlier for prevention. So environmental exposures, juice, low nutrition, et cetera. So if your child does have symptoms of an ear infection and they don't meet the criteria that I shared with you for getting into the doctor's office or meeting the criteria for an antibiotic, or even if you do need to go to the doctor's office because you just need reassurance and a double check and antibiotics are not needed, here's what you can do. First, basic comfort measure, super simple, old school, is actually a hot water bottle wrapped in a towel to avoid burning, obviously. And what you do is you can just fill the hot water bottle with hot water, not too full, because if it's too full, it gets so firm that it's uncomfortable to lay on. And then wrap it in a towel and let your child sleep with the affected ear on that hot water bottle. Don't use a heating pad that is not safe and it can cause burns. Another thing you can do is something called, it's a kind of your own homemade version of what's called Twena, which is a Chinese pediatric massage technique. But what you want to do is gentle, firm massage all around the jawline and the head in the area adjacent to the ear. And I usually recommend doing this one to three times a day. And you can put like one drop of lavender oil into uh, about a tablespoon of olive oil, mix that up for a little bit of a kind of relaxation, aromatherapy effect, or just use your fingers. And then gently but firmly in a downward direction in that soft area in front of the ear and then downward toward the behind the lobe and then behind the ear in that soft area and downward toward the lobe and then behind the lobe and down kind of in the direction of the shoulder, but just on the neck keep massaging there. It may be uncomfortable at first. If it's very painful for your child, don't do it. Adjust the amount of pressure you're giving, but really just help bring circulation and fluid movement to that area behind the ear. The next thing you can do is give herbal support for your child for fever, aches, discomfort. Now, check out my podcast and my blog on who's afraid of fever, because that's a whole other piece that we're not going to talk about right now, other than to say fever is almost always your child's friend. And so another disadvantage of giving things like Tylenol and ibuprofen is they bring the fever down just a little bit. They don't do that big a job, but they can bring it down enough so that it's out of the range that your body is actually, your child's body is actually trying to get to, to fight the viral or bacterial infection. So the herbs that you can use are more calming and relaxing. They don't touch the fever that much, but can help your child get better sleep and feel less pain and more, more comfort. One of my favorite formulas is a children's compound sold by Herb Farm. I do actually represent that company. So, you know, in full disclosure, I want to say that I don't get any money from you buying that particular product, but I'm a consultant for Herb Farm. But it's the product that I used for my kids when they were little. And I'll put the link. The name of it's actually changed. It used to be Children's Herbal Compound, and I'm actually forgetting the the current name of it. But I'll put that link below for you. But any really fantastic children's formula, Gaia Herbs makes some formulas. Other companies make some great formulas that contain chamomile, lemon balm, catnip, fennel. These herbs have been traditionally given 
for fever, aches, discomfort, and to help children sleep. For babies, the dose is about a quarter teaspoon. For children two to six years old, about a half a teaspoon. And older children can even take up to a teaspoon at a time. And I usually give it anywhere from a couple of times a day to every four hours. And you can get all of these on Amazon. And you can also go to Mountain Rose Herbs and get your own individual herbs and mix them in blends. For kids, I like the glycerites. Glycerin is a form of alcohol, but it's, it tastes more like a, a syrupy sugar and it doesn't give you any of the, you could drink glycerin all day long and you'd never get a buzz or any alcoholic effects from it, but it technically, chemically, it's an alcohol, but it tastes really sweet. And the herbs that I mentioned extract really well in it. So quite a number of companies sell these very same herbs in glycerin. Herb Farm sells it so that you can look at the dose per your child's age and Gaia sells them so you can look at your dose per your child's weight. Or I might've flipped that one does age, one does weight, but that's a really convenient way. You can also use teas, but you have to get your child to drink a lot more tea for that to be effective. But what I do love for kids with fever is herbal ice pops. That's a really fun way to get fluids and teas into kids. Now, as I mentioned, you can always give children's doses of Tylenol or ibuprofen as needed. The herbs, which I prefer, are gentler and safer, but don't necessarily work as quickly. So if there's significant discomfort, you can use you know one or two doses, as I mentioned, in an appropriate dosing as a stopgap measure. Now, a couple of the um, other remedies that I use that I want to share with you, some of my favorites, and there are some extras in the written forms of the article on treating ear infections on my blog, which is linked below, but there are two that are sort of classics that I want to share with you. One is going to sound really weird unless you've been following me for years and have tried this yourself, and it's called garlic lemonade. And you can use ginger instead of garlic, but garlic lemonade it doesn't taste as weird as it sounds. It is made by taking, uh, you take two cloves of garlic, not the bulbs, two cloves, and you chop them really fine. Don't press them because it'll make them too strong, but chop them really fine and put them in a quart mason jar. Then fill the mason jar with boiling water and let it sit for 30 minutes. Then you strain out the garlic and you add the juice of one whole lemon, and then you sweeten it to taste with honey. So you can use a few tablespoons of honey, which actually has antibacterial and antiviral properties to it as well. For babies under one, you can't use honey because of botulism, so you use maple syrup. And you can give it warm and give as much as your child will drink. So you can give a couple of cups a day to an older child. My kids loved it, so I don't know if my kids were just weird, quirky homeschooler kids or... You know, they started having it when they were really little, but they used to ask for it as a beverage. Like my kids say, mom, can we make some garlic honey lemonade? So, um, you know, get, if your kid is having ear infections, they're young enough, they might just really like it. An older kid, it might be an acquired taste. And then the ginger, if you're going to do ginger instead of garlic, grate up about a tablespoon of fresh ginger. And you can either put the ginger right into the mason jar, or you can take the ginger in the palm of your hand and squeeze the juice into the mason jar. And that kind of extracts the juice. And then you don't even have to strain it out. My other favorite remedy is something that you apply into the ear, and that's garlic mullein earache oil. Now, there have been some great studies looking at garlic 
and what's called nat the studies have called them naturopathic drops but they include garlic mullein sometimes other ingredients like saint john's wort have been used in them and they're in an olive oil base garlic is a natural antimicrobial fighting both bacterial and viral infections and mullein, you're using the actual flower of the mullein. And I'll post a picture so you can see the mullein with this podcast. It's actually in bloom where I live right now. And the flowers are harvested and dried. And those are steeped along with the garlic in olive oil. You can make it homemade. In fact, in the uh, Healthy All Year course I told you about, I have a video that teaches you how to make it at home if you want, but you can buy it. Many companies like Herb Farm and Gaia and some others um, sell it. You can find it on Amazon or in a health food store. And you, what you do is you take the dropper and you get about five or seven drops of the olive oil, even for little tiny children, it's more like three or four drops, and you have your child lay on his or her side with the ear that's bothering them up. So the, the, the not infected ear is down, the infected ear is up. And you pull their earlobe back slightly and you just drop the droppers right in. They might hear some ear bubbles, you know, like little bu water bubbles. You just let them know. And at first they might be averse to it because their ear hurts and they're a little scared, but it doesn't hurt to do the application. It's amazing for middle ear infections, for otitis media, and for the pain as well. I actually like to, I light a match and then I run the dropper, if it's a glass dropper, through the match, like super quick swipe right through because it warms it up a little bit. And then I just test one drop on the back of my wrist to make sure it's not too hot because the warmer oil feels better. You can also just leave the jar at room temperature you know, the dropper bottle at room temperature during the time that your child has the infection. This is for treatment, not prevention. The garlic lemonade, if you have a child who gets, you know, as my mom used to say, colds every Monday and Thursday, if they get a lot of ear infections, you can make the garlic lemonade a regular beverage. Just, you know, go easy on the honey because you don't want them to have too much sweet, but a cup of that a day is great prevention. The garlic mullein earache oil can be used two to three times a day the caveat is that you should never put it into a child's ear or put anything into a child's ear if there's any drainage or if you think the eardrum has ruptured. One way to know that a child's eardrum has ruptured is that they scream really loudly and then the pain goes away because the pressure has been relieved. Or there's stuff coming out of the ear. There's fluid or pus coming out of the ear. Or you go to the doctor's office and they do an ear exam with an otoscope and they can see that it's been ruptured. In that case, never put anything in the ear. One last or a couple of remedies is when a child does have an ear infection, I do use a probiotic. Probiotics have been shown to not only prevent, but also shorten the course of ear infections for kids. Echinacea has similarly been shown to shorten the course and prevent recurrent and upper respiratory infections in kids. And zinc, not just for prevention, but has also been shown to improve immunity and shorten the course of infections and prevent recurrences. So lots of information. What I can tell you is I have been working with families with herbal medicine for 30 years now and have worked with hundreds of families directly with kids who have had recurrent ear infections in the past who stopped getting them, kids who had had a lot of antibiotics, no longer need them, and kids whose parents were told, you know, they needed an antibiotic for their ear infection who came to me and we did the alternatives. 
Do I never use antibiotics for kids? No. I mean, if the if the child really meets the criteria, I will use an antibiotic for ear infections, but I can tell you that happens so rarely. I could count it on one hand in the past five years, probably how many times I've prescribed an antibiotic for an ear infection when we couldn't use the alternatives. But I want you to also know that those antibiotics exist for a reason. Yes, they can cause adverse reactions. They can have side effects. They can cause long-term consequences. But most kids do just fine if they need a single course of antibiotics. We want to be cautionary about them. We want to be judicious in their use, but it doesn't mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater and never use them. If you do have to put your child on an antibiotic, you can absolutely use these natural remedies at the same time. You should absolutely put your child on a probiotic at the same time as the antibiotic. And then I usually recommend sticking with the probiotic for about three months after the antibiotic has been completed, just to really get that gut flora bolstered up and you know get good lacto-fermented foods in the diet as well. So just as a quick reminder, I mean, this podcast and the associated blogs really have everything in them that you need to prevent and treat children's ear infections and know when more help is needed. But if you want to take a deeper dive into making your own natural remedies, hearing me talk with you about strep and belly aches and all kinds of other common things that kids experience, and if you just want to learn how to build your child's immunity and resilience so that you don't have to rely on pharmaceuticals pretty much ever, uh, my course, Healthy All Year, which you can find at healthiestkids.com is available. It's affordable. And honestly, it's like hours and hours and hours. So by the end of it, you might even get bored hearing my voice, but I hope you won't. And I hope you'll stay tuned for the next episode of Natural MD Radio. I know this has been long. I appreciate you hanging in there with me. I hope it's been helpful. If you have found it helpful, I would be so grateful if you'd head over to iTunes and drop a comment and let me know you liked this because that's how this information gets out to lots more mamas so they can prevent their kiddos from getting unnecessary antibiotics and to help them learn to heal their families naturally. Thank you so much. See you next week. hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.